series called Dear Church. Now, during this series, we are going to look at the letters that was written to the seven churches in the book of Revelations. We're going to study these letters that was written by the Apostle Paul via um, Jesus Christ to these churches. And the purpose behind this sermon series, as we look at Dear Church, is to discover not just what Jesus said to these seven churches, but what is Jesus saying through these letters to us as a church? What is Jesus saying to this church? If Jesus were to write a letter for us, every nation to our willows, what would be in that letter? And during this next couple of weeks, we're going to allow the Spirit of God and the Word of God to speak to us and say, Jesus, what do you want to say to us as a church? But also, what does God want to say to me and to you as an individual? And like I said, we're going to do this by, by looking at these letters written in the book of Revelations. Now, to give us a little bit of background on the book of Revelations, there's some people that's really excited about this. Hey, we're going to speak about Revelation. And there's other people that's like, oh, no, I saw a dodgy YouTube video about Revelations and the end times. And I don't know if I'm ready for that. But the book of Revelations is an incredible book. And... In fairness, it is a really difficult book in the Bible to read. Primarily because it's a, it's a, prophetic, it's a prophetic word, it's a prophetic book. And, and, the, and the, this letter, this revelation is full of prophetic symbols and meanings and numbers. But if we're willing, it's a beautiful, beautiful book to read. And if we allow God to speak to our souls, I believe there's something to be found in this letters to the church, especially. This is also one of the only books in the Bible that promises a blessing if you read it. Now, in general, the Bible says there's blessing for us if we read and apply the word of God. But this, the revelation, there's a specific reference that says, there's a blessing for those who read this. Now, often, revelation is only seen as a book about the end times. I don't know if you've heard that, have seen that, have believed that, it thinks about it. Um, you know, this last two years, it was just when I was preparing, I was reminded, and especially in the last two years, not this year, the year, the two years before that, when it was COVID and lockdown and all those things, there was this, let's call it social media rumors going around about end times and the end of the world and the apocalypse. Do you remember that? Yes, okay. Very often, Revelations is only seen as this book about the end times. And I hope that during the next few weeks that we will discover it's so much more than just a book about the end times. In fact, if we read the very first scripture in the book of Revelations, Revelations 1 verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. The main theme about the book of Revelation is not the end of time. The main theme is the glory 
and the majesty of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus. Not the earthly Jesus that we see in the Gospels. The glorified Christ reigning in heaven. That's the main theme of this book. What a great book to read. Because yes, it does speak about end times. It does speak about eternity. But ultimately, it's about the glory and majesty of Jesus. And this should encourage us. This should give us hope. Um, regardless of whatever is going to happen in the end times, we know the end. We know there's a glorious king sitting on the throne, victorious in a new heaven and a new earth. That should give us great comfort and great hope, regardless of what we go through in this life. It's like knowing the end result of a match or a sport that you support before it happens. Those of you who are soccer fanatics, Harry, Please don't shut down now. Stay with us. It's going to be short. But soccer fanatics will know today is the Manchester Derby. And there's nobody here. I expected the woo-ah. There's some Manchester United fans that's sitting here and you're fearful of what might happen today. Today, 3 o'clock, you're going to sit in front of that TV and you're going to go, hold on and hope for the best. Because Manchester United is playing Manchester City. It's one of the biggest soccer matches in England taking place. And it's a massive club. Two massive clubs that clashes. It's, a, it's just a big thing. Okay, just trust me on this. You go and you, and you watch that. And there's, there's a moment if you support one of these teams where you hope for the best and you don't know what you... But imagine you knew Manchester United already won 2-0. It's not a prophetic word, those Manchester United fans. You go into that and you're, you're like, I don't care what happens in the next 90 minutes. I know what's at the end. You're already typing the message that you're going to send to your Manchester City friends. This is other confidence. The Pratiyas are playing India later on today. Nolan, are you ready? Yes, they're at the back. We hope for the best. But imagine we already knew South Africa won by five wickets. You just enjoy the game much more. It's just easier to watch because you know the end. It's easier in this life because we know the end. There's a hope and encouragement. Now this letter of revelations was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And it's just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And while he is in this exile... He has a vision of the glorified Christ, a revelation. And then this glorified Christ, Jesus, commands John to write this revelation to the seven churches. Now, these weren't the only seven churches in Asia Minor at that stage, but there were seven significant churches, and they were all on a circular route. So they had churches of purpose, and the idea was that as this letter, the revelations, was written, it should be read in all the churches. And that's just a little bit of background as we're about to study the first letter to the church of Ephesus. So if you have your Bible, and I really want to encourage you for the next couple of weeks, bring your Bible to church as we're going to study these letters to the church in Revelations. Before we do that, let's pray together. 
So Lord Jesus, this morning we, we just acknowledge you as the risen King, the glorified Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for where we sometimes just limit our understanding of who you are. Where we place you in a, a box, we create a God that we're familiar with, a God that's easy for us to understand. And Father, as we commit ourselves unto you this morning, as we dedicate ourselves to your word, I pray that by your spirit and the power of your word, that you would come change our understanding, that you would come and reveal your will, your nature, and your character unto us. And Lord, that through your spirit and your word, that you would be changed inside of us, so that our lives will honor you. Because Lord, again, acknowledging today, it's not about us, it's about you. And we pray that you would be glorified in our time together. And Lord, that your ultimate purpose will be done in and through our lives. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this great opportunity to know you and experience you. And all of us say, amen. So the first letter we're going to look at is uh, to the church in Ephesus. And because of time this morning, I'm not going to elaborate too much on Ephesus, but Ephesus was a great city in Asia Minor, in the Roman Empire. It was a metropolitan city. So it was a large city, it was self-governed. There was a lot of stuff that happening. It had a port, so it was part of the trade routes. It was a wealthy city. And there were a couple of things happening in the city. It was a it was part of the worship of Diana or Artemis, the goddess Artemis. So there was, there was sexual impurity, was a norm in this city. There was wealth, um, um, magic, and let's call it witchcraft was part of what's happening in the city. Um, and I wanted to use the example of, to get us an idea. Now, if I'm saying an idea, I'm not saying this city that I'm going to mention now is full of witchcraft and all the other stuff. But to give us an idea of the popularity and the functioning of the city, a modern day equivalent would probably something, be something like Cape Town. It was a great city to live in. Everybody wanted to be in Cape Town. Who doesn't want to go to Cape Town? Don't you want to go, Sydney? <laughs> it's just a, it's a great place. It's a nature. It's just, it looks like awesome. Wealthy, big, great city. And there's a good church in the city of Ephesus. And the first letter is directed to this church. And let's read together. Revelations 2, verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, today's sermon is going to look a little bit different. 
from the scripture, from this letter that we just read, I'm going to make a couple of observations, um, speaking to these observations, and then at the end, I'm going to share what I believe is the practical application for us as a church. So bear with me if this looks a little bit different than what we're used to. Six observations from this letter. Okay. So the first observation, the characteristics of Jesus. The way Jesus describes himself here. Now remember, Paul is just scribing. If you read Revelations 1, Jesus commands him to write everything that he sees and hears. So it's Jesus speaking. Paul is just scribing this. Ach, not Paul, John, describing this. Now listen how Jesus describes himself to this church. He says, he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now if you read Revelations 1, we see there that Jesus says, the seven stars represent the angels or messengers or leaders of these seven churches. So Jesus says, I hold these leaders in my right hand. Referring to a right hand meant a position of authority and power. I hold them in my authority and my power. But then Jesus goes on and he says, and walks among the lampstands. Again, Revelation 1 tells us the lampstands means the seven churches. Jesus is walking amongst his church. And then Jesus says, I know your deeds. Jesus holds his church. He walks amongst his church. And he knows his church. This is an incredibly reassuring, motivating, and beautiful picture of how the glorious Christ is intimately involved in his bride. The glorious Jesus Christ is intimately involved in his church. And regardless of what we go through as a church, in any season, in any occasion, we have the authoritative power of God that holds us. We have the presence of God that keeps us. And we have the comfort to know that God knows us. He knows what we're doing and he knows what we're going through. This picture to the church in Ephesus, I'm amongst you, I'm with you, and I know you. What a great picture for us as a church, knowing the authoritative power of God is with us. It holds us. His Spirit's amongst us, and He knows us. Jesus is intimately involved with His church. Second observation, Jesus compliments this church. There's three specific things that He commends this church for, that He praises this church for. Firstly, He starts off, He commends them for their sacrificial deeds. He says, I, I know your hard work. I can see what you're doing. Thank you. You're doing great. You're doing the right things. Second thing that Jesus commends them for is for their sound doctrine. You listen to this letter and you can immediately hear that there were some false teachers and false apostles trying to do things. And they fought for the truth. They fought for what was right and what's wrong. They stood on the basis of what's the true gospel, what's the true understanding of God. They fought for truth and for righteousness. Jesus commends them for their pursuit of righteousness and their sound doctrine. You fought for the truth. You held on to the truth. And then Jesus lastly praises them for their perseverance and endurance in the midst of persecution. Even though you're facing persecution, you've stayed faithful. Now imagine 
That was us as a church. Imagine we're reading this letter for the very first time. Okay, here we have a messenger coming to us and say, they have had a prophetic word from Jesus, and this is the word that he has for us as a church. And this letter starts off by saying, the great almighty Christ is amongst us, he holds us, he knows us. Fantastic, great feeling. And then this God starts to speak into this church, and he says, I've seen your works. Well done. Thank you. I've seen how you fought for the truth. You're holding on to the truth. Great stuff. And more than that, you've persevered. You've stayed faithful. If you heard that this morning, coming from Jesus to this church, how would you feel? It's okay to give the person next to you a high five. <laughs> come on. As a church, we're making this. And I think at this stage, the church in Ephesus is like, come on. We're the church. That was what I would have done. I imagine if I was one of that stars, one of that leaders, and I sit there and I hear Jesus saying, you've done great. You've persevered. You've kept the truth. I would, I would be really chuffed. If this was a report card, I would take it. I would grab. Third thing. It's changing this letter. Jesus shares his concern, and Jesus rebukes this great church. This one thing I have against you, you have forsaken your love that you had at first. Doing great things, but you've forsaken your first love. See, they started off originally, originally passionate, motivated, zealous, for the kingdom of God, zealous for God, zealous to do the great things of God. They are passionate, in love with God. And somewhere along the line, even though they're doing good things, they've lost this love. And their deeds became a duty. Something that they must do instead of the joy of something they wanted to do. Serving God became something they must do instead of a joy of something they wanted to do. Now it's unclear from this letter whether they've lost their love for God, they lost their love for each other, or they lost their love for those who weren't part of them, for the lost, for others. Some scholars believe it's a reference to all three areas, where they love, lost their love for God, for each other, and for others. They weren't a bad church. There was just something wrong, something off. Their hearts grew cold. And their actions, although good, was loveless. This was a serious accusation. Those of you who are married, um, imagine this relationship between a husband and a wife. Or, or even between a parent and a child. Imagine the husband comes to the wife or a parent comes to the child and says, listen, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay committed to you and I'll be here and I'll provide and I'll take care of you, but I'm just not in love with you. Imagine a parent telling his child, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to you. I'm going to see this through, but I just don't love you. 
That's the accusation. You're committed, you're faithful, but you don't love me. See, the church in Ephesus did everything but the main thing. The fourth observation. Jesus' command for restoration. It just doesn't just leave them. It doesn't say, hey, you've missed this. Then he tells them, how do you get back? How do you not lose what you're reading? How do you get back to this first love? And then Jesus says, there's three things that they must do as a church. Firstly, and these three things is to restore their love. He says, remember. You must remember. You must remind yourselves of how your lives were before you knew Jesus. You must remind yourself of who you were before you knew Jesus. You must remind yourself of the effects that sin had on your life before you had new life in Christ. Remind yourself of how far you have fallen. Remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he has done. Remind yourself. And then from there, repent. Turn away from those loveless deeds. Repent of those loveless actions. Repent of those lovelessness. And return to the things that you did in the beginning. Return to those things that you did in the start. After this, Jesus warns them. He says, if you do not repent and turn back to the way of love, that he will come and he will remove their lampstand from its place. This is a tough warning, meaning they will lose their significance and purpose as a church. They will cease to exist with any purpose in the kingdom of God. Without love, they will become irrelevant to this world. They will cease to exist as a church. I read how one person said, as individuals, our eternal um, Safety is always guaranteed. Our eternal existence is guaranteed. But no church's eternal existence is guaranteed. As individuals, we can hold on to the promise that we are guaranteed of eternal life. But as a church, no. Church can cease to exist. You can become irrelevant to the kingdom of God and to this world. See, if a church moves away from the love of God, it loses all significance and purpose in this world. Sixth thing that we see from the scripture, Jesus then calls them to a commitment. It's a saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Meaning, they shouldn't just listen to the words of God but they should apply these words to their life. Don't just listen to what I'm telling you. God is almost imploring them, calling them to a commitment. If you can hear this, apply it. This warning is not if you do this, you're going to get punished. This warning is if you don't listen, this is going to be bad for you. Whoever has ears needs to listen. It's interesting to see that this call to commitment wasn't just to this church in Ephesus. If we look at that scripture, if you can quickly put that scripture on again. It says, whoever has an ear must listen. And he's, um, 
Can we put that scripture on, guys? It's not just to the one church. It says to all the churches. Scripture says churches. Meaning not just Ephesus, but all the other churches that this letter is going to be read in. Meaning even this church where this letter is going to be read in. Whoever has ears, just touch your ears. If you have a ear, if you don't have a ear, this is the one moment that you can be thankful for that. But whoever has ears needs to listen. Wherever this letter is read in the church, it would be good for the church to listen and apply. A call to commitment. See, six observations from this letter to the church of Ephesus. But how does it apply to us as a church? What, what does this meet, letter mean and say to us as a church and as individuals? Now for a moment, let's pause. Let's climb out of the church of Ephesus because this can be a heavy letter. Ten minutes ago, we gave each other high fives. Now we're feeling, oh, we're not making it. We're going to cease to exist. So just for a moment, let's think of anything that you've started with great enthusiasm and motivation and passion but struggled to complete it. Anything that you can think of. Marika, I see you turned to skulk immediately. I know there's something in your home. Something you started that you struggled to complete. Let's be honest. All of us have done this. You can just think about New Year resolutions. How many of you have started with a New Year resolution? You can say, this is the year. This year, and you start out with motivation and passion, and it's just don't complete whatever you commit to. Um, going to mention a couple of stuff. Diets. How many people have gone, I'm tired of this, I'm going to eat healthy, you have this plan, you started off motivated, don't see it through. Or you go, things are going to change, and you sign up at the gym, and that for the first three weeks, you're at the gym four times, five times, pumping weights, doing everything. Six months later, you've only been at the gym four times. Have this great exercise plan. Starts off with great motivation, but we struggle to complete it. How many of you have um, said, I'm going to read more? What's the ratio between the books that you've started reading and the books that you've actually completed? Just what's that ratio? There's one book on my um, bedside table. I've probably started it five times. <laughs> I've never completed it. And every time I go, this time, just somewhere along the line, I just, God. <laughs> we start with great motivation and passion, but we struggle to complete. How many of you still have a box in your house that moved with you into that house when you moved? <laughs> and you've unpacked everything apart from that what box? It would be fun. Just raise your hand. Nobody's going to judge you. We're at church. Thank you for those of you who are honest. Now, for those of you who raised your hand, if you've stayed in this place for longer than five years, please see me afterwards. I would love to speak to you. But we do this. How many of you, over holiday, you, I'm tired of how this place looks or how this room looks. I'm going to reorganize it. Or you watch something on Netflix or wherever, I'm going to declutter. I'm going to simplify our lives. And then you jump into that room and you move stuff around. You throw stuff away and then halfway through, you're just tired. This is more difficult than what it looked. And then you remind yourself, we actually need that stuff. And the room ends up being more cluttered than it was before. And you just, your best strategy is just close the door. We'll figure it out somewhere. See, whatever reason, 
for whatever reason, most of us don't always complete that what we start. And there might be good reasons, there might be bad reasons, but I want to almost venture and say all of us struggle to finish everything that we start, regardless of the motivation that we start with. See, we would be naive to think that what happened to this church in Ephesus cannot happen with us. We would be naive to judge this church and say, that will never happen with us. We must guard against losing our first love for God. So is your walk with God still motivated by love or has it become a duty? Is your walk with God motivated by love or has it become a duty? Do you pay your tithe not because you want a blessing from God or you feel guilty if you don't do it, but you pay your tithe out of an act of worship unto God saying everything belongs to you. It's not about me, it's you. Do you serve a church not because somebody intently looked at you when we did the sign-ups and go, are you going to sign up, sign up, sign up? Somebody forced you to sign up? Or do you serve in this church with a joy and a passion knowing that whatever we do and wherever we serve, it's with a purpose so that others may experience something of God. And you pitch up on a Sunday, you pitch up at an event with, God, use me for your kingdom. Or is it, oh, I'm serving Sunday. Do you pitch up in the week at the connect group? Do you commit to being a disciple, not because you must, not because you feel obligated, not out of fear, not because the connect group leader is constantly nagging you, when are you coming, when are you coming, but because of a real desire that I will know something needs to change in my life because I want to honor God. I want to be a good disciple. I want to live a life that matters in this kingdom. And whatever it costs, I'm going to do it. Is it still a joy and a delight or has it become a duty? Do we reach out? to our friends, our family, to those who do not know Jesus because we feel compelled, because in a live in an environment where we're constantly asking ourselves, who are you reaching out to? Or do we do it because something significant changed in your life when you met Jesus and out of love you want others to have the same experience? Is our walk with God still motivated by love or has it become a duty? There might be various reasons why we lose our first love, why we grow cold. As for this church, there might have been a couple of reasons. I've, I've listed a couple that I believe is most relevant to us. The most common reason why I think our love grows cold is we forget. We just simply forget. We get too busy and we forget. We forget how our lives was before we knew Jesus. We forget how we were. We will forget what was the effects of it. We forget what Jesus has done for us. We just forget. Second reason goes with forget. It's familiarity. We're just familiar with God. We've become familiar with the privilege to be in relationship with God. We've become familiar with the privilege of knowing that at any moment I can close my eye and pray and God is listening. We've become familiar with the word of God. We've become familiar with spiritual family. 
We think this is the norm. We think this is how life should be. We've become familiar with forgiveness. Forgetting what it means when God says, I pardon you of your sins. You are forgiven. We forget. We've become familiar with what a great privilege that is. We've become familiar with what it means to be a son and daughter of God. We've become familiar with the identity we have in God. The significance we have because of Jesus. We've become familiar with the gospel. Just, we know the story by heart. But does it still touch our heart? There's a danger that we come, become familiar with habitual sin. God will forgive. God will understand. So I'm just going to tolerate this thing in my life. If you tolerate habitual sin long enough, your love for God will grow cold. We forget. We become familiar. Disappointment. Disappointment has the ability to make our love grow cold. Life just doesn't work out the way that you hoped for or prayed for. And it's difficult to deal with that disappointment. And that might nullify your love. Being disappointed or offended by people makes our hearts hard. Makes it difficult for us to love others, to trust others again. Another thing that makes our love grow cold is unforgiveness. Walk around with unforgiveness. Maybe this person disappointed you. Maybe the church disappointed you. Maybe something happened. Life and this, this is unforgiveness in your heart that you're working towards others. You were offended by someone, something they did. And you walk with this unforgiveness. Unforgiveness directly opposes love because God's love is demonstrated now he forgave us. So if we carry unforgiveness in our heart, it just directly opposes the love of God. Almost it cannot coexist. I cannot walk in the unforgiveness that God has shown me and harbor unforgiveness towards. I walk in the forgiveness God has shown me and harbor unforgiveness towards others. And lastly, and I think this is ultimately the reason why we lose our love, is the self-centeredness. See, love is seen in what we are willing to give and do. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Love is selfless. Self-centeredness or selfishness is where everything is about me, what I deserve and what I get and what I think I should get. Self-centeredness will over time just nullify the love of God in your life. But there's this one big question that I struggled with with preparing for this morning. Why was this such a big thing? I joked about it, but up until halfway through that letter, if it was me listening to this letter, I would have been proud. This church has done great things, fought for the truth, done great deeds. They've persevered through persecution. They've stayed faithful. Why was this one thing such a big thing? Why is it such a significant thing to lose your love? See, this was not just another thing that they did wrong. It was the main thing that they did wrong. 
John 4, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8, we read, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. See, this accusation is so great and so significant, because God is love. If we move away from love, we move away from the very nature and character of God. And everything done, even the good things outside, love is meaningless and worthless in the kingdom of God. It's not God. It's as simple as that. Everything done outside of love is not God. So what's it part of? If it's not God, it's part of something else. 1 Corinthians 13, we know this well. It's almost read on every marriage or every wedding. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Everything outside the love of God is useless. To really try and nail this point, I thought about how can we, how can we t- tangibly understand what it means that if we lose love, everything is nullified. And I, and I thought, well, it's Sunday, so why don't I speak into Sunday lunch? And because it was Heritage Day just a couple of days ago, I was just thinking about what a great South African dishes we have. And, I, and my mind was just wandering and thinking, and eventually I, I settled on malfa pudding. Okay. Who does not like malfa pudding? It's like, it's, it's, it's probably as South African as you can get. Okay. Those of you who are not South African, you're from different nationalities, uh, welcome to a country. I hope you have malfa pudding somewhere along the line. Because malfa pudding is a South African, can we call it the delicacy? Is it fine? Maybe I'm exaggerating now. But it's just a great thing, malfa pudding. Okay, look at that picture. Some of you are having malfa pudding afterwards. Some of you are going to go to the store that I'm not going to mention the name to buy malfa pudding afterwards. And I looked at this recipe of ingredients. I was trying to entice Lindry to make it for us. She didn't fall for it. But Cup of flour, bicarbonate of soda, cup of sugar, one egg, one tablespoon apricot jam, vinegar. You can, you, you can use this recipe if you want to later on. Um, and then there's the sauce. And I thought about, you could, you could have the greatest ingredients. And you can mix all of it together. And have this expectation of what you're going to taste. I can taste this malfa pudding now. But if you throw in one cup of salt instead of sugar, it's going to waste everything. One change. It looks the same. In my mind, it's an easy mistake to make. If you just add one cup of salt instead of one cup of sugar, it will ruin it. And nothing you will do will be able to rectify that mistake. 
You destroy what was meant to be experienced through that pudding. That's what happens if the church loses its love. You can do great things. You can have great programs. We can do all magnificent things. But if we move away from the love of God, it just destroys everything else. See, people don't just need to hear about God. They need to experience God. And we can say the right things, but when people walk away from us, they experience something about the love of God. But because the right thing done with the wrong motive, done out of a lovelessness, can break down more than it can bring healing. If we move away from love, we move away from the nature of God. Our loveless deeds ruin the sweet taste of the character of God. What's more, the scripture says, our love for one another comes from God. So there's a real question that we need to ask. If our love grows cold for each other and for others, it might be because there's a disconnection from us and God. We might be too busy with the things of God and not busy with God. Because God is love. 